The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're going to go straight into the message this morning. Our special music is going to be actually after the sermon and before communion. And we're going to be looking here at Isaiah 53 again. We're, we're looking at the servant songs of Isaiah, of which there's four of them. Isaiah 42 and 49, 50, and we're mainly been focusing on Isaiah uh, 52 and 53, which is the, called the fourth servant song. And if you were here last week, you would have heard that there are five stanzas to this hymn. And we looked at the first two stanzas last week, which was Isaiah 52 uh, 13 to the end of the chapter, and then Isaiah 53, 1 to 3. And the first stanza and the last stanza um, are mainly in future tense because it's a prophecy predicting the future. So if you looked back at Isaiah 52, 13, you would see three shalls. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted up and shall be exalted. It's telling you what's going to happen. And then when you get to Isaiah 53, verse 10 and 12, that's next week's message. There's seven shalls, seven future tense promises. But we're right in the middle here. And I think it's important for us not to... um, It's kind of like with familiar text. If you've been reading Isaiah 53 a bunch, you might be... Uh, tempted to check out, like, I got this. I already know Isaiah 53. And I was humored this week in reading a story by a professor at University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And uh, he's a music uh, professor. And he tucked into his syllabus a reward because he, he didn't think that anybody was actually reading the syllabus. So he said for, uh, in the middle of his syllabus, he tucked a little parentheses, and he said, and I have a reward, and it's in this locker so-and-so, and And if you go to the locker so-and-so, and and he gave the combination, he said, there'll be a reward inside. And so inside the locker was a $50 bill and a notepad that said, please sign and date if you're the recipient of this reward. It was for the first person who got to it. And he put the combination on an easy number just to see if anybody had even turned the knobs by the whole semester. At the end of the semester, he went after the final exam and he noticed that, of course, nobody had even turned the combination lock and he opened it up and found his $50 bill in his note that was completely untouched. You see, people just thought they got this. They didn't need to really read the syllabus. It's like the professor who gave the quiz with instructions that says... Read through all of the questions before answering any of them. Did anybody ever get tricked with this in school? And, so, and then as you're go- when you get to the last question of the quiz, it says, if you've read this quiz and haven't answered any of the questions yet, please turn in your blank quiz and you will automatically receive 100. Um, the, and the point is, and how many people you think are sitting there working on that quiz for a long time and wondering, how come some people are already turning theirs in? They haven't written anything down, you know? Well, there is gold in this text, but you have to mine it. And if you think you're too familiar for it, I mean, there's something much better than $50 in a locker. The the psalmist said about this word that it's more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. So let's read it afresh and let's mine its riches. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have turned, are gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not its mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Although they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In case you're wondering if this is actually fulfilled by Jesus, we are told specifically in Acts chapter 8, verses 27 to 38, that an Ethiopian eunuch who comes to Jerusalem and he comes to worship and he he comes in his chariot, so obviously very wealthy uh, black man coming from the area of what basically is Khartoum, which would be more modern-day um, uh, Sudan. He comes, and he actually has the... Who has a scroll in that day and age? Well, he's able to purchase one probably when he gets to the temple, and he's got so much money because he's such a high-up guy. He's working for the, the queen, and... he's reading this scroll and he's reading right here this very passage I just read to you. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, "How, how can I understand this unless somebody explains it to me? He says, is this about the prophet or someone else? And Philip gets up in the chariot and tells him all about Jesus, the fulfillment of this text. And so what we have here is Isaiah is predicting and prophesying What is going to happen to the Messiah 700 years into the future, even telling you about his grave, which is exactly what happens when Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, provides the grave, because Jesus didn't have any money, but provides the the grave for him, so he's buried in the rich man's grave, fulfilling this, and he fulfills all the things in this text. And this is a Mount Everest passage for Christians, the other servant songs tend to be like, you know, the idea of rocks skipping across the pond. There's more than one servant. Servant can be Israel. Servant can be Cyrus. But ultimately, it's Jesus. Well, this is not a multiple stop flight. This is not a rock skipping across the pond. This is a direct flight. 700 years into the future, direct flight, Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And so... This uh, fulfillment is going to come about in the life of Jesus. And this is what we celebrate in the advent of the coming of Jesus. This prophecy has a future fulfillment. It looks to the future, as I mentioned, how it stands a one and stands a five are future. Yet the work is already considered to have been accomplished and therefore is spoken of in the past tense. So the very verses that I just read, all of verses four through nine, which are stanza three and four of this hymn, they're all past tense. Did you see that in verses four to nine? He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's speaking of this 700 years in the future and using past tense language because it's already 
been accomplished in the mind of God. And so we see that this text is clearly pointing towards the Messiah. And it's a stumbling stone for, G, for Jews often because they want to say the servant is Israel and no more. And yet as one commentator has put it, if it were not for the vicarious element, and vicarious is this idea of being a substitute, um, somebody suffering in your place to make atonement. If it were not for the vicarious element in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, which has so many analogies in, in Isaiah 53, there would be no barrier to recognizing the obvious substitutionary elements in this chapter. But because it's so obvious that we have to like, do something to say it can't be, because it professes too much, it would have to lead to a whole worldview change. It would lead to a life change. It would lead to worship of the Messiah. You see, the whole Old Testament is about substitution, scapegoats, lambs being slaughtered. The very Passover meal itself was celebrated and they would kill the lamb and they would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost in three different places so that when the angel of the Lord passed over and saw the blood, then we know that nothing would happen to that home. No plague befalls that home. And the Day of Atonement is also about a day of transferring our guilt and our sin to an animal. One animal would be killed in our behalf, and the other was called the scapegoat. And you would put your hands on that goat, the priest would, and then they would send that goat out into the wilderness. This is Leviticus 16.22. And if you're wondering, you know, people always ask, who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time? Is it you know, Michael Jordan, is it LeBron James, or is it Tom Brady? And the answer is none of them. The answer is Jesus. He's the scapegoat. You're going to see why as you look at this text, that he's the greatest of all time, because look what he did for our salvation. You see, when you consider verses 4 to 6 of this text, what you see is punishment. And the punishment is for iniquity. Iniquity is just a big word for sin. It's a stain. It's that blotted stain that we can't get rid of that Macbeth talks about. When you see verses 5 to 7, instead of punishment for iniquity, you see perfection and innocence. And yet a resolve to, to keep quiet and to lay down one's life. Martin Luther, a great reformer, said the heart of religion lies in its personal pronouns. The heart of religion lies in its personal pronouns. What do you mean by that? Well, consider the personal pronouns of this text. Look at the first person plurals. There's 10 of them, and they're really significant. So starting at verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ten personal, first person pronouns. And if you're wondering, okay, well then, who's the we? Who's the us? Well, I like straightforward text just to tell me. And the end of verse 8 tells you a very simple expression of the gospel. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Do you see that at the end of verse 8? Probably the clearest 
Seven words of the gospel. Stricken or struck down for the transgression, the sin of my people. So the, the we and the us is God's people. And that just then yeah, say, okay, well, who are his people? And his people are his chosen elect people from before the foundation of the world. They're God's people. But his people are those who put their names in this text and claim that it's true for them. You see, the gospel, when those personal pronouns become your personal pronouns, then it becomes personal for yourself. When you say, surely he has borne Charlie Bale's griefs, carried Charlie's sorrows, yet I considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for, and put your name in there. Claim it. Read it through and put your name in all those things. You see, do you see your need for the gospel? The gospel. You see, you have to own up to what we see in Isaiah 53 as we see how serious sin is to God. So serious that God would have to send His own Son and crush Him to bring us in. For many years, there's been this story that's been told, and I had to like Snopes.com to see if the story was legit. And Snopes.com kind of has an iffy, like I think at one time this story was true, but it's been embellished. And it's been around since the 60s, but the story goes like this. There's a lady that's driving down the highway, and she's driving down the freeway, and this trucker is right behind her. And he, start, he flashes his high beams on her, and she gets concerned, and she be, switches lanes, and the trucker switches lanes. And he keeps, every once in a while, popping up his high beams. And when she speeds up, he speeds up. And so she's getting more and more angry and agitated and bothered and afraid of this trucker behind her. And so she finally, she's trying to elude him. She can't elude him. She gets off the interstate, off the freeway. He gets off. She goes through a red light. He goes through the red light and stays right on her. So finally she gets so frantic. She, gets, she pulls off into a gas station and he pulls off into the gas station. Well, she jumps out of the vehicle and runs into the store. And meanwhile, the trucker jumps out of the truck and he runs to the back of the vehicle and he apprehends the guy that was in the back seat that was going to do terrible things to her. And he kept flipping on the high beams every time this guy would lift up his head as if he was going to do something to her. And the point is, is that she's scared to death and she's running from her rescuer. The very one that's going to save her is the one that she's afraid of and trying to get away from. And yet the very one who's rescuing her is rescuing her from somebody that she doesn't even see that the problem is in the back seat of her own car. And so often I would say that's true for us, is we're running away from our rescuer. And the real trouble is right here inside of us. And we're running from the one who's come to save us. He comes as the shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? He comes for sheep. And what have the sheep done in verse 6? They have each have turned to his own way. They've wandered off, these sheep. And what does the shepherd have to do? He goes and rescues them. When you go and rescue a sheep, what does the sheep do? Does the sheep say thank you? No. It screams and it cries out and it's kicking and screaming the whole time. It can't stand what you've done, that you've picked up this sheep. <laughs> Just like us. <laughs> We're stubborn. You see, we think... 
that we think there's something better out there. We think somehow this shepherd will end my fun. Meanwhile, our sin is about to kill us. and We can't even see it. And here's the greatest love story ever to be told. And if you want to know how we're sinners, we're told that Jesus was re- rejected, despised, and accounted as nothing. And we're so deceived and distorted in our affections that we would crucify the Lord of glory when he comes. His own people didn't recognize him. The very one who came to save us from our sin. We esteemed him not. Verse 4, that's an accounting term. It means basically we reckoned him a loser. We reckoned him as nothing. And what does he account us in verse 11? He accounts us as righteous. How does he do that? Well, we'll be looking at that this week and next week. But he's given us some gifts in his advent. In verse 11, he makes many righteous. We often speak of the great exchange when we refer to what Christ did for us on the cross. And this great exchange is this idea that we give Jesus what he he doesn't deserve. Right? Jesus gives us what we don't deserve. Jesus gives us grace. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us righteousness. He gives us perfection. He imputes his righteousness to us. His perfect standard of, of law keeping he has kept. And yet Jesus has given what we deserved. Our sins are imputed to him. And Jesus experiences our punishment, the wrath of God that our sins deserves, deserved. And he dies in our place. Theologians refer to this as the great exchange, but they in bigger terms, they, use this, they refer to it as his active and passive obedience. His active obedience is his whole perfect life that he comes uh, and he's born of a virgin in his whole life. He doesn't just drop down out of heaven and die on a cross, but he's 33 years of accruing this perfected righteousness of doing everything the law is required. We see that in his perfect life. And then he has this perfect death where he takes all of our sins and he takes them upon himself and there's this great exchange. He gives you his perfection and you give him your sin. And if you look at this text again, you'll see that. You see that in the text. You say, well, where is that in the text? Well, how is Jesus described in the text? Well, he's described in verse uh, verse 8 or verse 7. We're told that he's led like a lamb to the slaughter, and we're told uh, that he's made, uh, at the end of verse 9, that he's done no violence and no deceit is in his mouth, meaning he's innocent. He hasn't sinned. He, he doesn't deserve this. He, he himself is righteous. And then how come this is all coming upon Jesus then? Well, because Jesus is coming as the good shepherd for his lost sheep, But in the amazing love of God, the shepherd becomes a slaughtered lamb. You never heard of it. When does a shepherd ever do that? This shepherd becomes the lamb. He's the Old Testament sin offering. He's slaughtered not for his own transgressions, but for the sins of another. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15.3 just sums up the gospel by saying, Christ died for us in our place according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Well, places like Isaiah 53. He was cut off from the land of the living. You see, he's stricken for the transgression of my people. And so Jesus is this scapegoat who bears our sins and literally he takes them away. 
And Jesus didn't run off into the woods, though, like the scapegoat in Leviticus. He stumbled outside Jerusalem and is nailed to the wood on a tree at the local burning garbage dump outside of town. And the wounds spoken of here in Isaiah 53 and the bruising, that should ring some bells. It should ring bells all the way back to the first promise of the gospel that this serpent is going to be crushed and he's going to bruise the serpent's head, but the serpent's going to bruise Messiah's heel. And this fulfill, now we're seeing it being fulfilled here in Isaiah 53, but what also takes us back to the very beginning of, of Isaiah, to the, to the, to the chapter 1. And what we see is that the Messiah is experiencing the punishment for the sins described in Isaiah 1, 4-6, where he says, A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Why will you still be, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. And Jesus comes and is wounded for our transgressions in our place. You see, it's very interesting to notice what we've given to Jesus and what has been given to us in this chapter. So directly stated, verse 4 says that he, what we have given to Jesus is he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and the Lord laid him on, on him the iniquity of us all. So we give to Jesus grief, sorrows, wounds, iniquities. That's what we've given to Jesus. It's not a great exchange, is it? He gets the short end of the stick in a huge way. And the Bible just says about this, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what we see here. John Stott has this classic quote about the gospel, and he says this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, and God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. And that's exactly what you see here of what the Messiah gets of grief and wounds and sorrows. And you say, well, how did he get, how does he get even um, physical things like griefs and sorrows and, and, and the healing seems to be bigger than spiritual. So how can that be? And I would say this. I would say it's kind of like when you, when you set up all the dominoes, and you've probably done this as a kid, and then you click the first one, and then you just watch them, and you make a little design, and they knock all these things down. Well, when that first domino fell, when Adam and Eve sinned, the, the ripple effects of that sin have affected every area of our life. And now we all have these bodily ailments and bodily problems. And, and we do have all kinds of things of which there are lead to sickness. And sometimes directly because of our sin. And sometimes indirectly, just because now we live in a fallen world. And there are ripple effects and we're seeing it all around us in our culture. Right? We're seeing all kinds of political uh, divisions and racial divides and, and all kinds of... Uh, depression issues, um, 
that are huge. But they all, ultimately, it's because that first domino fell and it leads to all these ripple effects of psychological problems and sociological problems and economical problems and political problems. And, and of course, there's going to be physical problems. So with Jesus, he goes for the big fix. The big fix is to deal with sin and to deal with sin at a cross. And when he de deals with sin at a cross, he's bringing in his kingdom and he's showing you what a restored world's going to look like by healing people along the way. Even those meditation verses, the reflection verses, are a quote of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, probably of malaria. She has a fever. She's sick, and he touches her. She's healed, and he says, this was to fulfill, and it quotes this passage in Isaiah 53. But ultimately, that doesn't happen unless there's a cross. And even these people that get a temporary healing in this life, we still die. Because the fullness of the kingdom hasn't been ushered in yet of the new heavens and the new earth of which we long for. But what we see is the Messiah owns all of it. He doesn't just own our spiritual problem. He takes everything upon himself because he's going to restore everything. And he gets ultimately crushed. And literally the word is pulverized. He experiences the wrath of God all because the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, that's the, that's the half of the great exchange, is that Jesus takes all of our sins. But what does Jesus give you in this text? What does Jesus give you? He gives you three gifts. We'll talk more about the one next week where he accounted many righteous. But the two gifts that he gives you are at the end of verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. So what two gifts does Jesus give you in this text? What's the title of the sermon? The title of the sermon is Shalom. He comes to give peace on earth and peace to your very hearts. He comes to give Shalom. And how does he do that? This idea of Shalom is, is, a, is a fullness, not just a, a peace of a warm, fuzzy feeling. This peace is a wholeness of life. It's a peace of something objectively being accomplished is somebody has to keep the law. Somebody has to pay for where the law's been broken. And then when he accomplishes that objective peace, it gives subjective peace to our hearts. And what's factual becomes actual. What actually happened in time, space, and history on a cross 2,000 years ago, you're not just people walking around with a stigma on you, like, well, I, I, still, feel like a, I still feel like a sinner all the time. You are but you're not in the eyes of God. You're a saint. And the reason you're a saint is because of what Jesus did on the cross and because all your sins were laid on Jesus. And so we're not stigma-ridden Christians now. We are shalom-experiencing Christians, that we have the peace of God, that he gave us this gift. And the fullness of it is coming in the restored new heavens and new earth, and we will all be healed of every affliction. As C.S. Lewis says in, the, in the, uh, the last battle, he says, referring to one of the people, he becomes unstiffened. I like that. As I'm getting older, I start getting uh, stiffened. We're going to become fully healed. And so here's what's happening at the cross. Let me just give you a couple classic quotes and we'll wrap up here. But Horatius Bonar, a writer in the 19th century, says this, he says, the big issue is love and law must be reconciled. 
Love and law must be reconciled. Else the great question is, as to a sinner's intercourse with the Holy One must remain unanswered. The one can't give way to the other. Both must stand, else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. The reconciliation man has often tried, for he's, for he's always had a glimpse of the difficulty, but he's failed, for his endeavors have always been in the direction of making law succumb to love. Meaning, ah, he doesn't care about all the things you've done, no big deal. Try, try doing that to a judge. The reconciliation God has accomplished, and in the, in the accomplishment, both love and law have triumphed. The one has not given way to the other. Each has kept its ground. Nay, nay, each has come from the conflict honored and glorified. Never has there been love like this, the love of God, so large, so lofty, so intense, so sacrificing, so self-sacrificing. Never has law been so pure so broad, so glorious, so inexorable. There's been no compromise. Love and law have both had their full scope. Not one jot or tittle has been surrendered by either. They have been satisfied to the full, the one and all of its severity, that the wages of sin is death, and the soul that sins shall die, and somebody has to die, or law is done. Law doesn't count anymore, but no, law has to be honored, and so does love. How can he bring you in? And he says, love has never been more truly love and law has never been more truly law than in the conjunction of the two. It has been reconciliation without compromise. God's honor has been maintained, yet man's interests have not been sacrificed. God has done it all and he's done it effectually and irreversibly. And so sometimes, I mean, this is great news for the soul. And I just want you to look at this text and tell me about all the good things that you've done and how that applies to the gospel here. Like, where are we in this text? You know, people think that somehow the gospel is like God helps those who help themselves, or I know God did this, but now it's all up to me, and I gotta, it's, up, it's up to me now to, to feel good about myself for today, so when I put my head on the pillow at night, I can feel good that I've done something to make myself feel better before God. Is there anything about you in this text that you've done good, or, you know? No. It's Jesus has done it all. And so, because of that, we can rest in that. The gospel is, 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 as Richard Hooker put it like this, he says, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Such are we in the sight of God the Father as is the very Son of God himself. Let it be counted folly, frenzy, or fury, or whatever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no other knowledge in the world but this, that man has sinned and God has suffered. And that God has made himself the sin of men and that men are made the righteousness of God. So Martin Luther can say, a Christian is not someone who has no sin or feels no sin. He is someone to whom because of his faith in Christ, God does not impute his sin to him. It's imputed to Jesus instead. That's our hope. That's why we can come to the table. We can come to the Lord's table because of what He has done. He has made us worthy by His worthy sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord Jesus, that it is finished. We thank You that Your whole mission on earth was to come and die. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom we are chief. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table now, 
Meet us and minister your grace afresh to us that we would taste and see that you are good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.